DIY and How Studios presents Real Rock with Andy King. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Real Rock. I'm your host, the Reverend Andy King. And today we'll be looking at the 2017 documentary Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World. I will be covering various aspects of the film, so consider this your spoiler warning. You can view the movie on Amazon or wherever you stream your films, and then come back for our discussion. Some of the questions we'll be answering today are, Holy crap, is Andy taking something seriously? Can love really lift us up where we belong? And can an instrumental be dangerous? One special note I would like to make. I will be using the term Indian and Native Indian to describe the heritage of the artists as well as myself. I was raised by my grandmother, a woman very proud of her Indian heritage, and she used the term Indian to describe herself, as do I. If this offends anyone, I sincerely apologize, but I'm going to talk about this film the same way I would talk about this film with my grandma, profanity included. With that being said, I'm your host, the Reverend Andy King, and this is Real Rock Rumble. Figuring out that these people were Indians, and then we started to ask ourselves, why didn't anyone else know that? There was this key expression, be proud you're an Indian, but be careful who you tell. All of a sudden, I was talking about Native American issues and big-time television. And all of a sudden, everything disappeared. From Charlie Patton to Link Ray, Robbie Robinson invented the genre. Jimi Hendrix is the best in his field. Jesse Ed Davis, everybody wanted him. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? This has gone too long under the radar. In the mid-90s, in a small town called Altamahal, North Carolina, I was spending the stormy afternoon looking for something to do. The boredom of poverty is never romanticized, even in my nostalgia. But on this particular day, something had to be done. The storm had taken away outdoors exploration as an option. None of the VHS tapes interested me. Of the three TV channels we had, I was too old for the programming on PBS and not old enough for the soap operas. What to do? What to do? Oh, I know. I'll play a song from the jukebox. I have no idea where that jukebox came from. It was just there. In actuality, it probably came from a yard sale somewhere, but I like to think it just appeared one day in our trailer. I asked Grandma if I could play a song. 
She said I could do whatever I want as long as I leave her alone to work on the picture she was painting. I played song after song on that thing that afternoon. Mostly stuff I already knew, light 80s country tunes and oldies. But then, I hit a magic number. What is this? This is different. This is exciting. This makes me want to dance. This makes me want to fight somebody. This makes me want to grab that old acoustic in the corner with three strings and rock out like this guy. I wanted to reach into that old jukebox and pull the 45 out and go door to door telling everyone that this is awesome. I want to be a rocker. I want to be dangerous. I want to be the Fonz with an electric guitar and make somebody else feel that. All of these emotions flowed through me. My preteen adrenaline had maxed out and I felt like I was shaking. But I wasn't. I was just standing there, staring at that old jukebox. The song finishes and I play it again. Then again. Finally, my grandma yells out, is the jukebox broke? No. No, I just like this song. Well, that's old Link Ray, she says. She didn't know much about Link, but she knew two things that would connect me to Ray in the most personal way. He was from North Carolina, and he was part Indian. The Beatles made me fall in love. The Ramones made me want to dance. Bruce put a pen in my hand. Johnny Cash put a black shirt on me. But Link Ray put a guitar in my hand and made me want to conquer the world. That rumble riff, Link Ray, is really the founder of the hard rock riff. He introduced the seven chord, which I don't want to get too technical, but it's the, it's the chord that You Really Got Me is based on. The Who's My Generation is based on. That chord change, what we call the 1-7 chord change. It's in the riff. It's just that that's what gives it that attitude. You know, that attitude is immediately there in the first, the first five seconds of the song. Well, the attitude comes from that particular melody on that chord change. You know? It's the sexiest, toughest chord change in all of rock and roll. It's easy to see I'm not alone. But Link's story needs to be told, as does the story of Indians in rock and roll. Steve Salas agreed. Salas is easily one of the greatest guitarists ever. He has played with everyone from George Clinton to Rod Stewart and is one of those underrated, underreported-on artists in rock history. As Stevie gigged and became more immersed in his art, 
he began to reflect on his own Apache heritage and then started searching out more artists like himself. In 2010, he briefly joined the Smithsonian Institute to curate an exhibit on native musicians and popular culture for the National Museum of the American Indian. The name of the exhibit was Up Where We Belong, a Buffy St. Marie written song that was made famous by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens in the 1982 film An Officer and a Gentleman. Time goes by No time to cry Life's you and I Alive Today Love lift us up Up Where We Belong is a perfect name for the exhibit. Indians have long been ignored in the history of popular culture, music in particular. Salas teamed with Catherine Bainbridge to expand this story to the silver screen. This actually wasn't virgin territory for Bainbridge. She was actually a co-director on the great 2009 documentary Real Engine that explored the exploitation of Indian stereotypes in film. If you haven't seen Real Engine, do yourself a favor and check it out. It serves as a great bookend to this film. And here's a fun note. Neil Diamond is the credited director of Real Engine, but I checked. It's a different Neil Diamond. The film starts with the story of Link Ray and how his playing has influenced every generation that has followed him. We get a brief biography of Link and how he came to learn the guitar. As a lifelong fan, I was ecstatic seeing this unfold on screen. There's not a lot of documented Link stuff out there, so yeah, sure, whatever. I totally had a fanboy moment. But before you laugh at me, or cringe with me, Here's Jimmy Page being a total Ray head from the film It Might Get Loud. <laughs> I'd listen to anything with the guitar on when I was a kid, you know, that, yeah. that was being played and, and uh, all those different approaches and the echoes. And, but the first time I heard the rumble, it was like, that's, that was something that has so much profound attitude yeah, to it. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Now, now he's starting to increase a, a vibrato. On his amplifier, you hear blah 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 blah. It gets more intense. From Link, we head down south to New Orleans in an exploration of African Americans with native roots to traveling up to the Mississippi for a profile of Charlie Patton. For the uninitiated, Patton is arguably the godfather of the Delta Blues. Yeah, we all know the names Robert Johnson and Howlin' Wolf, but 
but it was Patton that inspired and mentored these great artists. Blues historian Robert Palmer once described Charlie as, quote, a jack-of-all-trades blues man who played deep blues, white hillbilly songs, 19th century ballads, and other varieties of black and white country music with equal facility. You gonna need somebody when you come to death. You gonna need somebody when you come to death. I will punch you out of man. Indeed, I believe You gonna need somebody when you come to death. Yes, I got a lawyer to go my bone. Well, I from the Delta to a brief exploration of the Jazz Age with Mildred Pierce, we then move to the Greenwich folk scene as the film profiles Buffy St. Marie and Peter Lafarge. If you've never spent any time listening to Buffy St. Marie or Peter Lafarge, do yourself a favor and check them out. Johnny Cash was so inspired by their work that he released an album, Bitter Tears, The Ballad of the American Indian, which features five of Lafarge's songs, including my favorite, As Long As the Grass Shall Grow. As long as the moon shall rise As long as the rivers flow As long as the sun will shine as long as the grass shall grow Washington, Adams and Kennedy now hear their pledges ring the treaties are safe we'll keep our word but from there we move to Jimi Hendrix yes, Jimi Hendrix you know Salas actually had to fight a little bit with PBS Brass the executives didn't see Jimmy as an Indian hero, so Steve set them up with the most badass move ever. He arranged for Jimmy's sister, Janie, to call his cell phone during their meeting. She calls. Steve hands the phone to an executive and says, why don't you ask Jimmy's sister personally? Salas credits this moment with really getting the film rolling. After a look at the career of Robbie Robertson of the band, we move to the great Jesse Ed Davis. Much like Link, Davis is one of those guitarists that your favorite guitarists admire. There's a ton of great stories about Jesse Ed playing with Lennon and Clapton, but I love the story of him laying down the solo for Jackson Brown in one take.
Next, we move on to Redbone. Hendrix shows up again, and he's the one that recommended that they embrace their Indian roots. After Redbone, we spend some time with Steve Salas and look at his career and how the great Randy Castillo really took him in and helped him reconnect with his Indian roots. Castillo was best known as the drummer for Ozzy, and the film does a great job at looking at his drumming from a native perspective and how tribal rhythms influenced his playing. This film has a recurring theme of voices being silenced. It starts with the plantation owners banning drums and percussive instruments. Link Ray's rumble was banned for radio for fear that it would incite violence. Another startling censorship story is the Johnny Cash record Bitter Tears, The Ballad of American Indian that we mentioned before. See, Cash was on top of the world after the massive success of Ring of Fire, and then released Bitter Tears with the single, The Ballad of Ira Hayes. Many DJs outright refused to play the record, which prompted Cash to take out a full-page ad in Billboard blasting the DJs. Some choice lines from the letter include, DJs, station managers, owners, where are your guts? I'm not afraid to sing the bitter words that the son of Oliver Lafarge wrote. Ballad of Ira Hayes is strong medicine, but so is Rochester, Harlem, Birmingham, and Vietnam. As an American who is half-breed Cherokee, Mohawk, and who knows what else, I had to fight back when I realized so many stations are afraid of Ira Hayes. Just one question. Why? Then Ira started drinking hard. Jail was off in his home. They let him raise the flag and lower it, like you'd throw a dog a bone. He died drunk early one morning, alone in the land he fought to save. Two inches of water in a lonely ditch was a grave for Ira Hayes. Call him drunken Ira Hayes, he will answer any more. Not the whiskey drinking Indian, or the marine that went to war. The answer, of course, is guilt. They felt guilty of their ancestors. You can't tell the native Indian story without guilt. One thing that stood out in this film is that Rumble doesn't indulge in a guilt parade. And it could, very easily. But that's not what this film is. This film, at its core, is a celebration of Indian heroes in rock. A showcase of the immortals, if you will. I'm actually quite impressed with the amount of artists profiled without feeling like they were squeezed in. Bainbridge knows when to take a breath in this film, and she knows when to step on the gas. Really expert documentary making, in my opinion. There's been a trend in documentaries lately of using background photos and clips really quickly. Some would say it's to pacify the short attention span nature of modern viewing audiences. The problem is there's a fine line how that works. 
for instance, if you watch A Long Strange Trip, the doc about the Grateful Dead on Amazon, Amir Barlev actually uses that technique, but he does it right. It's not distracting. If you watch Ubermensch, the Shep Gordon story, it's done way too much, and it ends up distracting you from the rest of the film. And when I was first reading about Rumble, I was really kind of scared before I watched it that they would fall into that trap. But Bainbridge holds back, and I just, I love the pacing. The only true criticism I could possibly offer to this film is that there are a few exclusions. For instance, Ricky Medlock appears in an interview, but Blackfoot are not really mentioned. And neither is the metal band Testament, and they've never been shy about their roots. I heard a rumor that Greg Allman's ex-wife Cher was half-breed. I looked it up. She's not. But 164th maybe Cherokee on my mom's side? That's not very catchy. Also absent is a late 90s, early 1000s industrial rap punk group, Corporate Avenger. I know you've probably never heard of them. Imagine if the insane clown posse were really political Indians. Of course, the critical consensus agrees with me. Rumble has been winning awards all over since its debut, including Best Feature Length Documentary at the Canadian Screen Awards. I have found a couple of bad reviews though, and since I need something to make fun of in this episode, I'm gonna quote one published review from a paper that I won't name. What we have here is less of an exploration of personal artistry than an entry-level history lesson. The film's one shockingly non-PC move is its use of the word Indian over the more socially acceptable Native American. That's not a fair review at all. Because the film is not a personal exploration of an artist. It's meant to be an entry-level history lesson. How can you say a film isn't good when it's meant to do exactly what you accuse it of doing? I imagine his reviews of metal shows go something like this. Metallica could have taken the high road and gave an exploration of Dutch clock dancing, but instead decided to bombard the audience with heavy metal. For shame, Metallica. What a dweeb. Also, the gripe at not using the socially acceptable term Native American. Great. Another white dude telling people what they should be calling themselves. I'll let John Trudell handle this one. See, when they got off the boat, they didn't recognize us. They said, who are you? And we said, we're the people, we're the human beings. And they said, oh, Indians, because they didn't recognize what it meant to be a human being. I'm a human being. This is the name of my tribe. This is the name of my people. But I'm a human being. But then the predatory mentality shows up and starts calling us Indians and committing genocide against us as, an, as, as, a, as, a, as a vehicle of erasing the memory of being a human being. 
So they used war textbooks, history books, and when film came along, they used film. You go in our own communities, how many of us are fighting to protect our identity of being an Indian? And, and 600 years ago, that word Indian, that sound was never made. <laughs> on this hemisphere, that sound, that noise was never, ever made. Ever. <laughs> We're trying to protect that as an identity, see? So it affects all of us. It's reached a point, evolutionarily speaking, we're starting to not recognize ourselves as human beings. We're too busy trying to protect the idea of a Native American or an Indian. But we're not Indians and we're not Native Americans. We're older than both concepts. We're the people, we're the human beings. Thank you for making me a human being. Makes my heart say, a world without human beings has no center to it. That clip is from Bainbridge's other film, Real Engine. And it's, like I said before, a great book into this film. But Real Engine is much more bitter than Rumble is. Rumble is downright hopeful. It looks to the past, sure, but the eye of the film is firmly planted to the future. The film seeks to inspire by looking at inspiration itself. The old saying, those who don't look to the past are doomed to repeat it, I happen to believe that those who do look to the past are destined to achieve. From the British kid who heard Rumble and went on to form the mighty Zeppelin to the Michigan boy that heard Rumble and was inspired to say fuck it rock and roll is badass and went on to form the Stooges to that little North Carolinian farmer boy in the mid 90s who found a Link Ray single and was inspired to love rock and roll to 20 years later when that same boy saw the film Rumble and felt rejuvenated in his love for rock and roll and his own Indian heritage. Rumble is an absolute must-see for anyone interested in rock and roll archaeology, and for this, I grant it the coveted five stars. Be sure to check out our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Find us over on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Email me directly at realrockpodcast at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L rockpodcast at gmail.com. Pick up a Real Rock shirt so people know you're cool. Links for everything are in the show notes. I'm Andy King, and this has been Rumble, the Indians who rocked the world. Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. 
Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Real Rock is written by Andy King and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.